Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So it's a Monday morning in the middle of October and here I am today studying the Battle of Ortona Um, and uh, I've got a real kind of excitement about this one because I've been reading and reading about this battle which I've come a little bit obsessed about, I don't mind admitting Um, This epic by the Canadians against first the 90th Panzer Grenadier Division and then battalion of the the Fauschermjäger. And, you know, you look at all these maps, you look at all these two-dimensional drawn maps and whatnot, and you've you've got a sort of a sense of it, and you have a picture in your mind. But until you're actually here, you just don't get a sense of the scale or, you know, how big these gullies are and these ridges are. And what I've started to realise, having sort of, driven around here a little bit this morning is is that what you've got here is you've got against 90 degrees against the flow of the advance up the coast sort of roughly kind of north south it's a little bit more kind of north west i would say the direction you've got these huge valleys that are kind of heading straight to the coast then you've got a sort of flat plateau and then you've got the next one and i'm now looking at the at the edge of the Morrow Valley. And the, the banks on the southern side, it's a really, really high ridge, so fantastic from the point of view of firing your artillery and having your artillery behind you, but absolutely awful if you're trying to get to... Uh, if you're infantry and you're trying to get across this place. And it's interesting, in all the accounts of... in all the accounts of, of, of the battle... People are always talking about God, endless sort of scrabbling through, through vineyards and and olive groves and literally every spare yard of the countryside around here, which hasn't been built on by roads or by buildings, is covered with either trees and little woods and copses, or olive groves and vineyards. And the vineyards and the olive groves are kind of side by side. So right now I'm standing between a whole bunch of olives, absolutely heavy with their with their fruit but also right next to us is another vineyard um with sort of you know autumnal hues sort of lovely orangey green leaves and and heavy with with the bunches of grape in fact actually we've already seen a couple of people harvesting it already and sort of tractor loads of grapes disappearing off to be uh, mashed up presumably 
But it's just, it is different to how I imagine, as it always, always is. And I'm now looking over at Villa Regatti, and, you know, the idea for the battle was, no, they weren't quite sure what the enemy's strength was going to be or whether they were going to heavily defend Ortona. But the idea was to try and get to Pescara, which is quite a bit further north, and then cut uh, westwards to Rome. That was the plan. No one was expecting Ortona to be a particularly difficult fight. You know, they just got across the River Sangro, which is 10 miles to the south. And that had been quite a pretty hard fight. Um, but no one was expecting the Moro to be particularly bad, except the kind of sort of troops on the ground who were, you know, the 78th Division boys who were already here on the southern banks of the, of the side of the valley of the Moro, who were already kind of sensed that this was going to be pretty tough. Now, opposing them was the, was the 90th Light Division, as it was when it first went over to North Africa in 1942 to join Rommel's Panzer Africa Corps. Obviously completely destroyed in Tunisia, that was that, but then reconstituted, rebuilt up again. And they are the opposition here. And, you know, mixture of quality, you know, in terms of quality. Um, but because they're Panzer Grenadier, that means they have got armour. There is armour here. There are tanks and self-propelled guns, Nebelwerfers, artillery, infantry with machine guns, and so on. And actually, the soil here is quite soft, so quite easy to dig in. Um, uh, digging a foxhole here wouldn't be difficult in amongst the olive groves and, you know, pretty, you know, pretty good def uh, defense, um, and protection from a defensive point of view, but horrible place to attack, you know, if you're infantry. Really, really horrible. Um, and it is primarily going to be the second Canadian infantry brigade that's going to attack. It's going to be the, um, Princess Patricia's corn, um, Canadian light Infantry, which is going to attack a place called Villa Regatti. And I'm looking at that on the other side. I can just see the tower of presumably the church and some terracotta roofed houses sort of perched on the top. Very picturesque, actually, above the vineyards and olive groves on the other side of the valley. And I guess sort of, yeah, about several hundred feet above the valley floor, quite steep slopes quite steep slope so the road the tracks that would have the mule tracks on the strada bianca that would have come out of the valley sort of winding hairpins up the up the valley side so again you know difficult through which you uh, across a difficult place over which you would you would attack um the infantry absolutely need armor and that is that's the critical point here. You know, can the Calgary's, the tank of the Calgary's regiment, can they actually get up there on the other side and support the, support the infantry? They're going to attack Villa Regatti. And then further inland is San Leonardo, which is a slightly bigger village. And that's going to be assaulted by the Seaforth Highlanders. And then as a diversion along the coast, that's where the hasty peas come in. But quite a demanding battle plan, it has to be said. And the key thing is, is how easy is it to get across the Morrow and get up onto the other side of the valley? And that's where I'm heading now. Well, I've stopped at the valley floor. I'm looking on a bridge overlooking the uh, concrete bridge, sort of iron railings alongside it. It looks really old, I have to say. Um, obviously rebuilt after the war. And I'm looking down at the, at the River Moro, which is a, a torrente rather than a fiume. So a fiume is a river. That's a decent-sized river. So the Sangro would be a fiume. The Moro is considered a torrente. So that is just like a stream, a trickle. It's not the water that's the issue here. It's, it's the depth of it, and it's getting across it. And from the bridge, I would say that's got to be... 
50 feet, 40 feet, something like that. You know, it's quite a drop. It's it's very lush here. I don't know if you can hear some of the bird song, which is rather lovely. There's there's willows, acacia, there's a chestnut tree, um, but it's very wooded and verdant um, and lovely. But you're just not going to be able to you're not going to be able to bridge this very very easily. And actually, this is the problem with the attack by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry on Villa Regatti, because they get it up there, and they actually do pretty well. They take Villa Regatti, push back the Germans, and they're all absolutely fine. But the problem is, is the Canadian sappers don't reckon they can bridge this. So they go, this is just not going to work as a main access. You know, it's all right for infantry, because they can crawl down into the valley, get across the the, uh, the little stream of the Morrow and clamber up the other side. But you can't get tanks up here and you can't get artillery up here. And, you know, I mean, you, we all know what a 25-pounder looks like in its train, you know, with the with the quad, then the limber, you know, and then you've got to get 24 of those for a regiment. You need bridging. You need decent tracks that can get you from A to B. And the Canadian sappers don't think that's going to be possible. So that means... As a main access of attack, Villa Regatti is out. And that's, that has big consequences for the Battle of Ortona. Because the alternative is to go on the access towards San Leonardo. And San Leonardo is the next village along, a couple of, you know, mile or so along, um, towards the coastline, up on the plateau on the northern side of the Morro. And that is a much, much, much tougher battle. And it's there that I'm going to go and head right now. Well, we've just come up onto um, the plateau above the Moro, north bank of the Moro, um, to Villa Regatti, which was captured by the um, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. But then they had to pull back again. Um, and on top, it's completely flat. It's a, a totally flat um, plateau again covered with vines and and um, and olive groves and we've just been past a paintballing place of sort of incredibly um, gung-ho aggressive wall paintings on the barn outside so you too could be like the Germans or the Canadians fighting in and out of the vineyards around Villa Regatti um, and then on the other side of it literally you just come out of the village and it drops down again into another sort of gorge um, which I guess is probably 500 yards wide, something like that. And I think this is the gorge that protects the south, sort of runs in a kind of um, northwest to southeast direction to the west of the vi- village of um, San Leonardo, which is where we're heading next. But blimey, I wasn't really expecting that, I must say. And then on the other side of it, at the same height, is the flat um, plateau again. It's an extraordinary landscape, it really is. Well, this has just been fascinating. We drove into San Leonardo, which is a bit of a dump, it has to be said, but, you know, not really surprising because it was largely destroyed during the war. I've got a dog behind me, he's a little bit upset that I'm standing in front of his post. But we then dropped down into the Morro Valley again, and what was really interesting about that was, was although it was bridged, uh, and obviously that was destroyed um, back in 1943. The approach to the actual river itself was much more gentle, so you could see how tanks could get down there. Now, 
tanks did get there uh, of the Calgarys and they did, uh, a few got bogged down, but some did get up the other side. Uh, it's not easy, but it's a lot more easy than it was um, below Villa Regatti. Although actually, once the Canadians pulled out of there, that side and, and, the, and the main effort was posted, was put towards San Leonardo and closer to the coast where the Hasty Peas were, the 8th Indian Division were pulled up and their sappers did manage to bridge it below Villa Regatti, which they then christened the Impossible Bridge because the Canadians said it was impossible to bridge it there. But what I have, I don't think I ever actually said was that the attack was launched on the, uh, on the 6th of December. So by the evening of the 6th of December, there's a narrow bridgehead. So C Company has been, is going up the windy valley road that drops down from San Apollinare um, on, on the southern side of the Morro Valley and then clambered up using the kind of the, the, the road that leads up to San Leonardo from the valley floor. They were using that as their axis while B Company was going into a kind of one of these weird gullies, these weird sort of chasms, gorges, just that run sort of on a, on a, on a line sort of southwest uh, on a sorry northwesterly line beneath San Leonardo, from where I'm standing now on the southern heights overlooking the Mara Valley, I can see San Leonardo, and I can absolutely see that gorge that B Company of the Seaforths went into and managed to get into. So by the evening of the sixth of December, the Seaforths have got a kind of a narrow little bridgehead over the Morrow. And the Shermans, the main bulk of the Shermans, are lined up where I'm standing now on this road overlooking the valley, engaging at long distance kind of, you know, German MG posts and what have you. But you totally can see why this proves such a tough nut to crack. So what they then decided to do was try and exploit the success of the Hasty Peas, who also launched this attack closer to the, um, to the sea on the same day. And then pour much more um, infantry and armour down that route and then cut back towards San Leonardo. That was the plan. But again, it descended very quickly into a kind of sort of horrible slogging match. But that's where I'm heading next to see where the hasty peas were and how they tried to kind of outflank San Leonardo from the east. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. See you in a moment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people will be <laughs> horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Well, I don't know whether you can hear that. That's the motorway, which obviously wasn't there in 1943. Um, going across a, the, the, the Morro Valley, and this is, uh, I can see Ortona in the distance over on the hill. And this is a really big, deep valley here. And this is the part where the hasty peas crossed. And if Farley Mowat was quaking in his boots, I can completely understand why. Blimey, this is, this is just not funny at all. Um, a really, really difficult bit of terrain. Well, I can't tell you how exciting it is being here. It, it, it's so brilliant when you've been reading about a battle to then start piecing it together on the ground. And the thing that strikes me is, is, We've really plunged down almost to the bottom of the Morrow Valley, across which the Hasty Peas are attacking. And they're up against the 361st Panzer Grenadier Regiment, part of the 90th um, Panzer Grenadier Division. I can just see the sea. I mean, it's only oh, half a mile away, something like that, to the edge. So this is where they're attacking, right on the coastal line. But Again, I completely understand why Farley Mert was so worried about coming down here. And of course, what I've got just to, um, just to the right of me is the old Highway 16, which is the old main route, um, going up to, uh, uh along the coast, uh, uh, along the Adriatic coast. And of course, what the Germans have done is they've already worked out, you know, if it's, if the Allies are going to attack where they're going to attack. So they've already zeroed all the roads. They've zeroed all the cart tracks and mule tracks and so on with mortars and with interconnecting machine gun fire. And from the ridges, the ridge above, I'm looking up at it now. It'd be easy peasy to set up a, um, you know, an MG post in a house or, you know, in a, in a little sort of foxhole and overlooking this valley and having literally every part of it covered. 
So what happens is Lord Tweedsmuir is ill. So um, Major Burke Kennedy is, is acting um, battalion commander of the Hasty Peas. And he sends in C and D company and they get absolutely hammered. Um, and that's the bit that upsets Farley Mowat so much. He just thinks all his mates are all being sort of sent in to be slaughtered. And then it all, the weather turns again and it's all sort of misty and horrible and foggy. And, and it looks like they're absolutely being hammered. So, so Kennedy then orders them to withdraw. But radio links are down and D Company doesn't get the message. So actually just keeps going. And they manage to get up onto the other side and have a really commanding position. So at this point, and then they reconnect with the radio link. And at this point, Kennedy goes, you know what? Reinforce success and sends the rest of the, um, rest of the regiment and after them. And they do manage to secure the heights on the other side. And it's a, it's a, it's a key part of the battle because that is what is helping to unlock San Leonardo because they're now on the northern side of the Morro. San Leonardo is a couple of miles to the west. So the idea is, well, perhaps we can get some more men up onto the top of the ridge, the Royal Canadian Regiment, the RCR, and get them in and then they can attack from uh, from the east back down towards San Leonardo and provide some support for the sea force. That's the plan. So I've come to one of the uh, major landmarks of the phase, first phase of the Ortona battle, which is what we're still in. And, and this is what's known as Stirling Castle. It's not a castle, it's just a, a solid looking villa. Six to five windows at the front, three on the first floor, two on the ground, central front door um, what looks like a, a orange or lemons I don't know but anyway they're green currently green fruit they haven't ripened but anyway this was where Lieutenant Mitch Sterling and his platoon number 16 platoon um, were left holding fort um, in the midst of the 90th Panzer Grenadier Division's major counterattack on the 8th of December so what's happened is the hasty peas of managed to get across the valley. They've got this little bridgehead um, off Highway 16 on the north side of the Morrow Valley. And then the idea is to try and sort of help um, clear San Leonardo by heading down a road that runs roughly southwesterly direction along the northern um, heights of the, of the Morrow Valley towards San Leonardo and help the sea forths, etc. And so the Royal Canadian Regiment, the RCRs, are heading down here. And Mitch Sterling's um, 16 platoon, part of D Company of the RCR, is here when they meet the full weight of 90th Panzer Grenadiers' counterattack. And armed with Bren guns and, um, and rifles and so on, they managed to um, just keep firing at the Germans, whose dead were left littered all around the olive groves and vineyards around about this house. Uh, and by the time that um, they were relieved later on that afternoon, on the 8th of December, apparently at least 50 Germans had been killed or wounded. So quite a thing. And this house became known as Stirling's Castle, presumably after Stirling Castle. Um, and here it is, still looking very solid, very robust, and frankly, none the worse for wear for its ordeal 79 years ago. So 
really, I suppose you can see the Ortona battle in three phases. So the first phase is getting across the Moro, uh, getting on the other side, capturing San Leonardo and San Donato, which is where the hasty peas were on the kind of Adriatic side of things, um, and then pushing on um, and trying to go straight into Ortona. What they hadn't appreciated, though, was there's yet another little valley but this one is a really narrow one and it becomes comes known as the gully it's incredibly narrow pretty deep and basically it runs just south of the lateral road between Ortona and Orsonia and there's no real way of sort of getting across it and it's sort of you know only thing that can get into this gully you know see what you do the Germans sort of put machine gunners on the top they put their um their own mortars in the um, in in the bottom, there's absolutely no way a tank can get across this. So, of course, infantry are then without armor support when you're t- attacking. The only way you can attack anything that's actually in the gully, in this narrow gorge that runs roughly kind of east to west, is using mortars. And so, it's an incredibly effective and massive anti-tank ditch. So the alternative is to kind of outflank it, but the Germans have already thought about that as well and have got the whole eastern side of, um, western side, sorry, of Ortona completely covered. And what they try and do is they try and sort of bridge the far end of the gully because uh, eventually it kind of sort of narrows out and sort of flattens out as it, as it rises up towards um, the plateau between the Moro and, and the kind of, you know, that higher ground, that sort of flat higher ground. And so although San um, Leonardo is taken on the, 7th of, uh, on the 9th of December, so three days after the battle begins, the next phase really is for the gully. Um, and that happens on the 11th to the 13th of December. And again, it's just, it's just awful. And, you know, Farley Mowat is so brilliant about this, his description of trying to get across this awful chasm. But what they really realised is to get to Orsona, they need to capture this key crossroads. And the crossroads is coming out of the kind of, you know, the western side of the gully from San Leonardo, heading going northwards to a crossroads. And the crossroads today is a roundabout. There's lots of industry here. There's an auto lavaggio, a kind of car wash. Um, there's a roundabout that feeds onto the main A14, the main motorway going between um, Bologna and Bari. And at the centre of the roundabout, it's an absolutely fantastic to see, is a Sherman tank. And this crossroads becomes known as the Cider Objective. It's codenamed Cider. And I'm just crossing the, the roundabout now to the centre of the roundabout. The tank is called Athena. And this is finally captured on the 19th of December. So this is just, you know, what is supposed to be a very short few day battles is just turning into an absolute slugging match. The base of this memorial honours the Royal Canadian Regiment and Captain Richard M. Dillon, CMMC, Colonel of the Regiment, wounded at Ortona on December the 24th, 1943 donated in loving memory by his wife Elizabeth and his family how fantastic is that it's really good to see side across there we are memorial is put in on the 20th of December 2011 
to the honour and glory of the many civilians and military who sacrificed their life in a Sanguinosa battalion. I don't know what Sanguinosa means. A terrible battle, I suppose. And why they found the spirit of fraternity guided them always the route of people into <laughs> a better future. I think something like that. Anyway, I've got the gist of it. Ah, oh, and there's another plaque on the other side of the tank. that says, this tank honours veterans of the 12th Canadian Armoured Regiment and Sergeant Rudy Vinet, 27th Anti-Tank Battery and is donated to the citizens of Ortona through the generosity of Seymour Skulik, CM, Harry Steele, OC, Michael Vercurley and John Cleghorn. Wow, that's great. You know, you can see why this is just such a tough, tough, tough battle. There's another memorial at the front, and this is the 12th Canadian Armoured Regiment, which is the Three Rivers Regiment, and this is the one that then fights into um, Ortona. So they've had this little pause after the... Um, after the battle for the gully, they finally get up to this crossroads on the 19th of December 1943. And that means that they can finally start thinking about getting into Ortona itself. But if they think that Ortona is going to be easy, they can think again because... General Lemonson, Lemelson, who is the commander of the 10th Army, has announced that Ortona is not to be given up lightly. And instead, he sent down the 3rd Battalion of the Fauschenjäger Regiment and told them to hold on to it come what may. And that's basically what they do, and it turns into this ghastly street fight. So this is the kind of the third stage of the Battle of Ortona. Well... Like most people going to visit the battlefields, it's always good to come to the Commonwealth War Graves Cemetery or indeed German Cemetery or American Cemetery, but cemetery of the place that you've been, that commemorates those who were killed in the place that you've been studying. And I'm at the Morrow Battle. They call it the Morrow Battle rather than Ortona Cemetery, which is just south of Ortona. Like all of them, it's just kept immaculately a plethora of gorgeous deep red roses the central cross of the crusader sword on those familiar portland stone uh, gravestones everywhere and i've come to look one particular which is major alex campbell who had returned from illness to join rejoin the hasty peas and was killed making an absolutely suicidal charge it was on the 25th of december christmas day and he was much loved by the men of the hastings and prince edward regiment the hasty peas um and not least of course farley mowat who wrote about him so affectionately he was farley mowat's company commander in sicily and a big bear of a man an absolute big six foot plus broad shoulders square jawed Married, um, bowler counts an absolutely lovely bloke, brave as an ox, um, and inspiring, the sort of person that you would follow into battle. But he wrote a prayer called Prayer Before Battle, and it's a bit self-indulgent, I know, but I thought I'd read it. When neath the rumble of the guns I lead my men against the Huns, tis then I feel so all alone. 
and weak and scared, and off I wonder how I dared accept the task of leading men. I wonder, worry, fret, and then I pray, O oh God, who promised oft to humble men a listening ear, now in my spirit's troubled state, draw near, dear God, draw near, draw near. Make me more willing to obey, help me to merit my command, and if this be my fatal day, reach out, O oh God, thy guiding hand, and lead me down that deep, dark vale. These men of mine must never know how much afraid I really am. Help me to lead them in the fight, so they will say he was a man. Wow, something else, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's not Shakespeare, but because of when it was written and the circumstance it was written and the fact that he was killed leading his men in a kind of sort of Colonel H. Jones style charge and absolutely cut down by German machine guns, it's particularly poignant and it's poignant for me because I've got access to his letters that he wrote to his wife and from his wife during the war and very moving they are too. <laughs> <laughs> 